this second antiphon in the Latin, having, if we translate into English, would read like this. O Adonai, the leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. That rough translation in the Latin of these seven antiphons in the 1800s was again translated, simplified, and put into the song that we sing during the Advent season, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The line that is expressed or the stanza that expresses what we've just read here of this antiphon, the second antiphon in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is, O Come, O Come, Thou Lord of Might, who to the tribes of Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Right? And so we sing that song and we'll sing it. We're building an anticipation. So in another few weeks, we'll be quite informed and quite blessed, I think, when we have the opportunity to sing this song together. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he gave to Moses a name by which he was to be identified as Israel's God. And the name was Yahweh. It's the name that we have, I am that I am. The Hebrews would not pronounce that name Yahweh. It was considered to be such a holy name that in order to pronounce it or to pronounce it was to commit blasphemy. They didn't believe that it was possible that sinful individuals could safely pronounce the name Yahweh. It was four consonants and those four consonants together became known as the Tetragrammaton. And so they would not pronounce the Tetragrammaton. They refused to put between those consonants the vowels that would say those names. And so instead what they would do is they would replace the name Yahweh with the name Adonai, just a common name for Lord. And we're in the habit of doing the same thing. This Latin song that we just sang, it says, O Adonai, the leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire in the burning bush. But we know that it wasn't Adonai that made himself known there, or that wasn't the name that was given. It was the name Yahweh. And so when we look at this and we think of this song, we're actually looking at it, you might say, through and understanding the Tetragrammaton. We're understanding that what's being brought to us is, and we are celebrating and singing the name of Yahweh, the God who's revealed himself. And as God was revealing himself to the people of Israel, he was making it known that he was reasserting his claim upon them as their God the God of the people of Israel, this slave nation in Egypt, and he was also reasserting to them that he was going to deliver them and take them out of their bondage. So God was giving a promise of deliverance, and God was also asserting himself or reasserting himself in this unique covenant relationship that he had with the people of Israel, and he gives to them this name as the name that identifies him in that role as deliverer and this role of establisher or the one who asserts his covenant over the people, and the name is Yahweh. Yahweh means, well, it says here, I am that I am, or I be what I be, and it is actually a name that is expressive of God's eternity. It's expressive of his unchanging nature. It's expressive of his self-sufficiency and his self-existence. When we say I am, we have to put a modifier to it. There's no modifier to God. He modifies himself. He is all that he is. He is the great I am. He is sufficient in himself. He is existent within himself. He has existed throughout all eternity. He is unchanging in every way. He is the great I am. And at this burning bush, remember, God comes and he asserts his ownership or his claim 
that the people of Israel belong to him. In verse 7 of Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster, for I know their sorrows. So God is holding out this promise of deliverance and he's reaffirming this covenant relationship. This eternal, unchangeable, self-sustained, self-existent God who gives himself the name Yahweh gives the name of promise and relationship. I want to make a number of observations from this text and from other things that we're going to be considering, but we'll start at this text. And the first thing I want us to observe here is simply this. This self-sustained, self-existing, eternal God reveals himself in holy fire that inhabits the burning bush before Moses. As God is introducing himself, you might say, or reintroducing himself. It's not though this name was totally foreign to the people. Abraham had pronounced this name before. This name had been given to Noah as well, but now this name is introduced to the people of Israel, and as God gives this name and introduces himself, he introduces himself in a blazing flame of fire that's burning within this large tree or bush within the landscape, but not consuming it. And as Moses approaches this place, out of curiosity to see what it is, God speaks to him out of the bush. And what does he say? Moses, take off your sandals from your feet for you are on holy ground. And so what God is doing in the fire is he is establishing his presence as a holy presence to be revered, to be feared among God's people. And from there, God will reveal that holy fire, that presence. He'll lead the people out of their slavery in Egypt in a pillar of fire, which we would call the Shekinah glory. And in that pillar of fire, it will come down between the people and the advancing armies of Egypt as they're seeking to destroy them. And it will be that pillar of fire that will sweep through and open wide the Red Sea and guard them as they come through the Red Sea. And eventually, it will be that same pillar of fire that will come down like a tornado on Mount Sinai and fill the people with such fear as God speaks from that cloud of fire that they cry out to Moses and say, don't let God speak to us again or we'll die. God gives a command to them from Mount Sinai that they're to put boundaries around the mountain and not come near this mountain that is roiling in the fire of God's Shekinah, God's holy fiery presence. Don't let anything living come upon the mount or else if they break through, they'll die. Later on, God gives instruction. There on Mount Sinai, he gives instruction to Moses on how to construct the tabernacle where God is going to make his presence known to the people. And after they're finishing constructing the tabernacle, what takes place as they're dedicating it? Fire comes down upon the altar in front of the tabernacle and consumes the sacrifice they've put there. And it comes down upon the holy place where God is to make himself known and the ark of the covenant that they had constructed as an expression of his presence. Then the nation of Israel began to worship in that place. And you also remember the story that there were two priests, the sons of Levi, that came and they brought fire to the altar to worship God, but they collected the fire from their cooking fires around their tents, which was not according to the instruction God gave because they were only to worship God with that holy fire from the altar that had been lit by his presence, his own holy presence. And when they came to offer up their sacrifices with this common fire, fire came out from the tabernacle, it says, and and consumed them and they were destroyed. Actually, read the story of the nation of Israel. You'll see off and on that this fire reappears and it always fills the people with great terror. God is not to be toyed with. God is awesome and God is powerful and he makes himself known in this blaze of fire. And We're going to make another point about this fire that burned within that desert bush, but now let me go to a second point here. The second point is here. This self-existing eternal God 
condescends to identify himself among the tribes of men. This self-existing eternal God condescends to identify himself among the tribes of men. God says, I've seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. And he repeats this again, my people, that he is going to deliver. All of the nations had their own regions or territories. And within those territories, they had their own territorial gods. And these gods were their Elohims. They were the gods they worship. It's the same name that is used of the God of all creation when he identifies himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Elohim created the heavens and earth. And God declares himself to be the God of Israel. He's the Elohim of Israel. And it's as if God, in a sense, walks among the nations and he sees that all the nations are choosing their own territorial God. And I say this with all reverence, but it's as if God says, I will accept this approach to the gods. And I will, in a sense, throw my hat into the ring to be a God among a people myself. And I'll choose a people for myself that I will be the God to. The Egyptians have their gods and the Amorites have their gods and the Jebusites have their gods and I'll be a God. I'll be a God among a certain people as well. And I'll choose a nation of slaves. I'll choose the weakest tribe among men and I'll be their God. And God comes in this way. It's a profound expression of God's condescension as in a sense he is making himself known fully to the nations that he chooses to make himself known, you might say, as one of these territorial gods. One of these gods that is picked among the various nations but in this case instead of him being chosen by the Egyptians or the Jebusites, he chooses the people that will be his. It'll be the Jews, these slaves. I'll make them my people and I'll be their God. It's a wonderful expression in my mind of this horrible, awesome, fiery, holy God who, in a sense, for the sake of being known by men, contracts himself to appear as a God and be a God for one small band of people and to be among them, as we say, within the tent and the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant and there to make himself known. And yet we know that God is doing something wonderful. God is condescending because this is the God who blazed on Mount Sinai. This is the God who led them forward through the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army. And this is the same God whose holy indignation is cast against the various gods of Egypt and systematically defeats one after the other. Every single one of the plagues in Egypt is a plague that is directed towards the power of a various God that reigned or was worshipped in Egypt. And God defeats each one of them as he begins to deliver them until he takes them out of the land of Egypt to demonstrate that he's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Yet he comes to this in this condescending fashion in order that he might be among them. And at the same time that this is a tremendous condescension of God, what a tremendous exaltation for the Jews. The God who has pledged himself to them is the God of gods. He's the creator of all being. He's the Lord of all. He's the great I am. He is the God whose name is fearful and unspeakable. He's the God of the tetragrammaton that you cannot even say, who is self-sustained and self-existent, who comes before and after all things. The powerful, the only all-powerful God has come among them to be their rescuer and to bind himself to them in covenant relationship with the name Yahweh. I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. What a wonderful thought. What a wonderful expression. Here's a, a third observation. And now we go back to that fire that's in the bush. Moses met 
before this fire as he was out tending a flock, working as a shepherd. It's an interesting thing when you read through the scriptures, you'll see the image of a shepherd repeated. And although some of them may just be incidental, and some of them may cast our image just towards some expression of leadership, there's something about it that's reflecting a broader truth that I want you to see here. That's true of God himself and how God reveals himself. And here... As Moses is tending the flock, he sees this fire and he comes before this fire. And this is our third observation. The fire that was burning in that bush revealed that this holy, fiery God is tender with his own people. It burned in the bush, but it did not destroy or consume the bush. The holy God was inhabiting the frailty of that dry desert bush and yet not destroying it, but making it a place where he would reside. And so at that moment in time, he gives a promise to the Israelites that it was such tender care, this infinite, holy, fiery God would abide among them, be with them without burning one tender shoot, one branch within them. He would abide in their presence. God, so powerful, so awesome, so fearful, in the dry bush and not consuming it, coming among them and shining out in that way, and that's the promise of what he would be to Israel. That's the promise of what he would be to us. One of the most tender manners in which Yahweh, the Lord, revealed himself to Israel is in the expression, in this way in which this all-powerful God would come to him, is in the expression that he would be a shepherd to them. That's why I mentioned that Moses was a shepherd. That's why when we see this motif of the shepherd throughout the scriptures and we see the shepherds in their fields and we see when the Lord Jesus is even born that the shepherds were in their field keeping watch over their flock by night. And of course, we can think of just those shepherds and tell a story about their lives and their experience, but there is something in it in a general way that is reminding us of an overarching way in which God has revealed himself that throughout scripture he revealed himself as a shepherd. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 40. You might take your Bibles and go there for a moment. Isaiah chapter 40. As we're reading it, remember that we said that if you see the name God, capital G, then continual capital letters O-D, you're seeing the name Yahweh, seeing the name. And if you see a small O and a small D after the capital G, God, you're seeing the word Elohim, which is the name, you might say, of God identifying himself as this localized God for the people who has established himself among one unique people group, the people of the Jews, in this case. Here's what we read in verse 9 of Isaiah 40. God speaks and says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up to the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. There's the word Elohim. Behold your Elohim, the one who belongs to you. Behold the Lord. That's the word Adonai, God, Yahweh. Behold the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule before him. Behold his reward is with him, and his work before him. And he will feed his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs with his arm. And carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those who are with young. What a beautiful picture of this God. This all powerful God. Yahweh the great I am. Coming as a shepherd. Now take your Bibles to Psalm 23. And let's just do a, a brief review there. The word there in Psalm 23 is. The Lord is my shepherd. We know it. Many of you have memorized it in the old King James. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall have no needs. I shall have no need. And the word there really is. 
The Lord Shepherd. It's a compound name for God. It's the Lord as Shepherd. It's Yahweh Rohe. Here, the infinite, eternal, self-existing, and self-sustained God of holy fire that spoke out of that burning bush and burned upon Mount Sinai when he brought the law comes before an individual and reveals himself as his personal shepherd. Shepherds don't wear royal robes. They wear work clothes. Someone has said that potters don't dress in velvet and janitors don't wear silk and shepherds don't dress like kings. And here's the God of all gods revealing himself in the robes of a workman who comes to serve and care, the clothes of a caregiver of sheep. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that there are eight various compound names for Yahweh. It's where God takes this great I am name, and then he compounds it with a promise, a covenant promise that he gives to his covenant people. And so there are eight of these compound names. And here's one of them. The Lord is my shepherd. It's Yahweh, Rohe. I will be a shepherd to you. I am the shepherd to you. There are eight of these. There are seven more of them. And these seven names are not mentioned in Psalm 23, but you'll see all seven of them, the other ones, are present in Psalm 23. So there's Lord my shepherd, which is Yahweh Rohe, and then there is Yahweh Jireh, or the Lord will provide, and then there's Yahweh Shalom, which is the Lord our peace, and there's Yahweh Rophe, which is the Lord who heals, and there's Yahweh Tzidkeno, which is the Lord our righteousness, and Yahweh Shema, which is the Lord who is ever present with you. And Yahweh M. Kadesh, which is the Lord who sanctifies or makes holy. And there's Yahweh Nisi, which is the Lord, our banner, or the Lord who exalts us under himself. These last ones that I just mentioned to you, as I said, are not mentioned in Psalm 23. But if you go and read Psalm 23, they all appear under the expressions and the ministry of the Lord who is our shepherd. And you'll see this. Let's look at it very quickly. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh Rohe is my shepherd. The Lord will provide. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The Lord our peace. He leads me beside still waters. The Lord who heals. He restores my soul. The Lord who is righteous. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. The Lord who is ever present. Yea, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The Lord who sanctifies, who makes holy, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I would just pause to say that the shepherd used his crook as a means of guiding and watching over sheep. And when a sheep was wandering away, he would grab that sheep by his crook and he'd bring it back into himself. And so... How do we fall away from holiness? Well, we fall away from the Lord. And how does the Lord bring us into holiness? He reaches forward with his disciplining rod and he draws us back into himself. He's the one who makes us holy through his divine and loving corrections. The Lord, our banner, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. God vindicates us. God gives us a song of joy to sing in the presence of our adversaries. God feeds us and nourishes us before a smirking world and In the end, we can say that he anoints as a result our head with oil, our cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life and we will enjoy the richness of this covenant relationship in the house of the Lord forever and ever. This is an expression of the tender way in which Yahweh had come among his people, in which Yahweh made himself known among his people. 
I just want to say something here. This is how the God of gods, the great I am, came as a tribal God to the people of Israel and made himself known. He came as a shepherd to tenderly care for his sheep, but they took this profound, supreme condescension of God and somehow in their minds, they downgraded the holy God of the burning bush and this God who gave his law at Mount Sinai and they began to treat him in his condescension and drawing near to them in this way as if he had diminished himself to become an equal with the tribal gods of their neighbors. And so when they weren't experiencing God in a way that suited them and delivered on their desires or their needs or their demands, they would revert back and go back to those tribal gods of their neighbors. And they'd go to those gods to get the appeasement for their satisfaction or their desire or their pleasure or their pursuit of power or recognition or whatever it was, their protection They would go back and seek it from these tribal gods whenever it suited them. They'd turn back to worship these territorial gods and they'd seek their favor instead of living in covenant surrender to the great I Am who had come among them to be a shepherd. His very condescending and lowly approach somehow in their minds got turned around. How odd that they still would not say the name. They somehow paid some allegiance to the tetragrammaton in terms of what they said with their lips. But their hearts were far from him. And they treated him just like another territorial God to be traded out when he wasn't delivering like the gods of other people were having delivered to them. And so they rejected the holy and infinite God that came, had come among them in condescension. It's stunning, but it's true. Because of their sins, they like sheep went astray. They became slaves once again to other nations and to the tribal gods of those nations just like they had been in Egypt. And God then does something wonderful. This is the fourth thing I want you to see. God promised to come again to the rescue. God promised that he would come and rescue them through his Messiah. And God made it known to them that his Messiah would be to them a tender shepherd. And he would come back and rescue them like a tender shepherd all over again, watching over his flock. Let's just look at a couple of passages. Go to Ezekiel chapter 34 where we have this promise of God to his people. This is Ezekiel writing to the people who have been taken away in in the tribe of Judah, and they've been taken away in captivity to Babylon. And there in Babylon, Ezekiel is writing this vision of a day in which God will come, and God is speaking through him to restore the people like a shepherd. And yet as we see this, God is building a model in which there's a bridge that's made between what God promises himself to be and what they will receive through the Messiah that is coming to rule and reign over them beginning in verse 11. Let me read down to verse 16, and then we'll go to verse 23 and 24. Here's what God says to him. For thus says the Lord God, the word there is Adonai Yahweh. Again, we're back to that covenant name. Thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. 
I will make them lie down, says the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. I will bind up the broken and strengthen that which is sick. And we could go on reading the rest of that verse, but now let me just take you down to Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24. For here, God reveals the means by which he is going to exercise this shepherdly ministry as he speaks of the coming of the Messiah. And I think most certainly this is who is being referred to is the coming of the Messiah. I will establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Take your Bibles and go over to Micah. Go to chapter 5. And let me read to you verses 2, 4, and 5 of Micah. And you'll remember these. This is the promise that was delivered to the wise men when they came seeking the one who had been born king of the Jews. It tells you that the people of Israel were waiting and longing for this coming shepherd. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And now down to verse 4. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord Yahweh his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. The Messiah is coming. God was a shepherd to his people. His people of treated him like another tribal god. They followed back into bondage and slavery. God is going to still come to his people and rescue him through the Messiah and he will come among them with God as a shepherd to deliver them as a flock. So we come to the story of the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus makes himself known and little by little the Lord Jesus is revealing his messianic credentials to them. It's as if he gives one hint or one declaration after another to reveal himself and make himself known. And in John 10, 11, he makes himself clearly known. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Now, if you'll remember, in an occasion prior to this, it's recorded in three of the synoptics where a rich young ruler comes to the Lord Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And you remember what Jesus said to him? Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. The reason the Lord Jesus was saying that was to not diminish his standing before that man, but was to begin to put a hint in that man's life to subtly exalt himself before that rich young ruler. But here the Lord Jesus takes the title and applies it himself. It's not given to him by the rich young ruler. He gives it to himself. I am the... He wouldn't say, why do you call me the good rabbi? Now he says, I am the good shepherd. The whole nation knew that God was a shepherd to them. The whole nation was waiting for God to send, as a shepherd, to send the Messiah to rescue him. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He puts together this divine notion of the shepherd, and he applies also this messianic hope of the shepherd to himself. I am Yahweh, Rohe, is what he's saying. In fact, in John chapter 8, just prior to this, you'll remember, Verses 56 to 58, he is arguing with the Pharisees and the religious leaders because he has made himself equal with God. And he says at that point in time, well, he claims to them that they're from their father, the devil. And they say, our father, Abraham. And Jesus says, well, if you're going to quote Abraham, he says in verse 
56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. They say to him, the Jews say to him, you're not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? You're crazy. And the Lord Jesus responds and says back to them, most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am the tetragrammaton. I am. I am the good shepherd. And Jesus applies to himself this same wonderful name. The radical condescension of the triune God continued to express itself in the Son, Jesus Christ. He came down in the garb of a servant shepherd to rescue his people from their sins. He came with a towel wrapped around himself to serve and not to be served and to give himself a ransom for their sins. He came not only as a shepherd, he came as a lamb to be slain for us. And he as well was rejected by those he came to. And he's coming again still. He's coming to finish the delivery of those who trust in him and turn from false gods of destruction and seek him to bring them home into his glorious heaven where they will ever be with their shepherd, their provider, their peace, their healer, their righteousness, their ever-present savior, their holiness, their banner of exaltation to be with the promised Yahweh of Israel over us all, our shepherd, and a shepherd to the ends of the earth so that he is great in peace before all of his creation. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. And so the church sang, O Adonai, means Yahweh, O Adonai, the leader of the house of Israel who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai, Come and redeem us with outstretched arms. Let me make quickly some application for ourselves. God's condescension to Israel did not equate him with anything else. God did not come to us in Jesus Christ so that we may treat Jesus Christ as any other man. Even though we know that we may approach him and touch him, the marvel is that God became flesh and we beheld him as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And as we see him and behold him and come near him, it's a wonderful thing that we can now come before God face to face, as if God is reasserting his commitment to, in a sense, be a tribal God, to be localized before us. But as he comes before us, we're not to think that he's just like any other man. We're not to come before him and seek him out as one whom we simply exalt for being a heroic figure or we look up to in order simply to honor as any other man. He didn't come to occupy a place in the pantheon of our gods. Don't confuse the great condescension of God with any diminishment of God. Do not mistake the condescension of God and Jesus Christ so that we may approach him and he may approach us to infer that God may be approached like any of the idols of this world. We don't say, choose Jesus in the place of fame. Choose Jesus in the place of pleasure. Choose Jesus in the place of family or riches or honor or power or security or comforts. All those things that you're seeking from all those false gods, go to Jesus instead for those things. We don't say that. That's a prosperity gospel. We don't offer it. He hasn't come to replace your idols. He's come to destroy them. If you opt for the Lord Jesus as a replacement for your idols... 
It's very likely that when he doesn't seem to be delivering them to you, your desires that the idols once did, you'll go back to your idols again. You seek to satisfy your desire from them again. Because you'll have thought that his condescension to come to you in this way and in this means was equating himself with those things. He's still always the holy God. Instead, we're to lay out all of our idols before him for his destruction. We're to let them no longer hold any place in our hearts as a means to an end for our own well-being. We're to find all of our life in Christ. He has to be the Lord. He has to be the I am that I am of our being and our life. And he must set his holy fire within us, consuming us or burning away that which is unholy and impure, but tenderly keeping us. But don't let his tenderness with you and his patience with you lull you into a spirit of casualness before him. It's awesome. It's fearful. Reverence him. Come and bow before him. And as you reverence him, by the way, the more you reverence him, the more you live before him in fearful awe, you will increase the encounter of his tenderness. You'll increase the experience of his tenderness as you are in awe before him. Now it remains to embrace this shepherd, to come to him as Yahweh, to come to him and look upon his face and see in the eyes of our dear Savior Jesus Christ a hint of the holy flames of holy fire that John saw when he looked at him and had his vision on the Isle of Patmos. His eyes were ablaze with fire. We come and ask that he might let that holy fire burn within us to claim us like a little bush that he would burn within and not consume. Just consume everything else around so that you might be all in all. Our Adonai, our Yahweh, our covenant God. Let's bow our heads. It is enough for us, O oh God, that the applications we learn above everything else in life is that you may increase in all things, including ourselves, may decrease, so that you might be all in all. We thank you for that vision Daniel had of the mount that came down out of heaven and fell upon the statue of world powers, fell at its feet, crushed it, it crumbled, it disappeared, and then that mountain grew to inhabit the whole earth. And, oh God, what are the... What are the things that rule over us? What are the powers that we go to? What are the things we long in? What are the things we hope in? Oh, let Christ Jesus come, fall upon it, crumble it, blow it away by your holy wind. Oh, Jesus, increase to be all and all before us, the great I am. Burn before us in all your holiness. And abide within us in all your tenderness. And let these two meet meet in our hearts through your Holy Spirit in the name of our great God and Savior, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.